the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. And he knows that this is before him, and he knows that the cross is his mission, and he's compelled to go there by love. And it is love that will keep him there. His obedience to the Father and his love for the world. And so he says to Peter, look, I've got a cup to drink. It's the cup of suffering. Put your sword away. Well, verse 12 then says that then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. The disciples weren't about to let their Savior be arrested without a bit of a fight. Pastor Gary will share with you today how his band of followers, while passionate, weren't great at preventing the inevitable. But that was okay. That was the plan. Jesus knew exactly what needed to happen and where it would lead, all the way to the cross. His obedience to his Father and his love for every man, woman, and child on the earth compelled him to act, and that action was being led away to his death. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 18 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. As we look here into chapter 18, note with me verse 1. It says, when he had finished praying... In the upper room, he had chapter 17, he prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for all believers. And then it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he is, and his disciples went into it. Now, you might just want to make note here in, in the margin. The one beauty about having all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that you get the total picture from four different vantage points, all four inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit. But John does not mention some of the things that the other Gospels do, and he mentions some things that the others don't. When we get here to the story of Jesus' final 24 hours, uh, John does not mention anything about Gethsemane. He doesn't mention the agony of Jesus' prayer time. Uh, Luke particularly talks about the agony of his prayer time because Luke even speaks about how Jesus in his agony breaks into a, a perspiring of blood. Hematidrosis is the medical term where little capillaries in his forehead just begin to burst with the excruciating agony that he's under. And so John doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention the name of the garden as Gethsemane. He doesn't mention uh, the, the, uh, the droplets of blood that he perspires. He doesn't mention, as Luke mentions, that an angel of the Lord comes and ministers to Jesus. John, John leaves that part out. 
And it says in verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guided, uh, guiding a, notice this, a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now I'm going to show you in a little bit a timeline uh, of events, as best as we can guess. Uh, they're coming here with lanterns and torches because it is probably now about one o'clock in the morning. And Jesus has finished the Passover meal with his disciples, and then he's going to labor in prayer, the other Gospels tell us, in the Garden of Gethsemane before being arrested here. It tells us, John tells us, again, this is something John mentions, the other Gospels don't, that Judas comes with a detachment of soldiers. Now that's actually a military term. The Roman soldiers were broken down into various units. A detachment of soldiers was one-tenth of a legion. A legion were 6,000 soldiers. One-tenth is 600. And so they come with 600 soldiers. Again, sometimes our preconceived ideas of the arrest scene of Jesus is maybe half a dozen soldiers and Judas. You know, I don't know what your idea of it is, but John tells us that Judas comes with a detachment of soldiers. 600 Roman soldiers with torches and lanterns and weapons. And in addition, some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. It tells us also there in verse 3. So then you add, you know, 11 of Jesus' disciples with him, in addition to Judas, who's already here with the Roman soldiers, betraying him. And you have close to 700 people. And there are probably seven, about 700 people in this scene here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, here on the Mount of Olives, and uh, here they come to arrest Jesus. And verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? So you have to imagine this. It's, you know, it's dark. They're coming with lanterns and torches. So you know, they're trying to figure out you know, who, who, is, who is the one that we're supposed to arrest here. Judas is going to betray Jesus with a kiss, but John leaves that out also. The other got three other gospels tell us Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. John leaves that part out. So they're trying to, the soldiers are trying to figure out who is the Jesus here that we're supposed to arrest. And Jesus then puts himself forward. You know, Jesus has this resolve now to go to the cross. He's, he's agonized in the garden of Gethsemane. He's poured out his heart in prayer. He has lifted up all of this to the Lord, and now he has resolve. And he says to the detachment of soldiers who have come to arrest him, who are you looking for? Now, Jesus, knowing all things, it says, he knows that they're looking for him. But he puts himself forward. Who are you looking for? Who is it you want? And they reply there in verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is another detail only John tells us about these Roman soldiers and how they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, Jesus' response to their question, uh, who is his question, who is it that you want? They say Jesus of Nazareth. And he says in your English Bible, I am he. But in the original Greek language, it's not three words. It's two. And in the original Greek, uh, Jesus says, ego, I me. Ego, I me in the Greek is simply, I am. 
Remember through the Gospel of John, there were seven times that Jesus made I am statements. And why is that significant? Because Jesus is invoking a divine name. When God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said to God, who should I tell the Egyptians and my own people, who should I say has sent me to them? And that's when God reveals himself by that name, the self-existent one, tell them, I am, has sent you to them. And that language in the Hebrew in Exodus chapter 3 translates the self-existent one because God has no beginning and no ending. He has always existed. He is always eternal. It is hard for our human minds to grasp the idea of an eternal God who has always existed. But that is how God reveals himself in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. And Jesus picks up that same terminology to invoke his divinity when these soldiers come to arrest him. Who is it you want? We want Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus invokes the divine name, I am. In Hebrew, that's where we get the the proper name of God, Yahweh. Because that translates, literally, I am, I am the self-existent one. And Jesus here, using that same term, now defines himself as the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I am the great I am. And when he says that, these Roman soldiers fall back to the ground. Now, side note here. I have, over the you know, years of ministry, I've had some people say to me, isn't this a biblical example of when people were slain in the Spirit? This is not a biblical example of when people were slain in the Spirit, okay? The only real biblical example you have of somebody being slain in the Spirit is Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira were slain by the Spirit. <laughs> when they lied to the Lord and God killed them, Okay? Because sometimes God appears as Father God, and other times He appears as the Godfather. Do you know what I'm saying to you? (laughs) You know, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter, when they, when Ananias and Sapphira come and they're lying to the Holy Spirit and they lie to Peter, you know, I could just hear Peter, you know, rolling old school. Just like, you know what? I know the Godfather, and He owns a planet. They will never find your bodies. Do you know what I'm saying to you? (laughs) To use, you know, and so, So that's the way it's rolling here. First of all, listen to me. These people are not filled with the Spirit. These are the enemies of God. They have come to confront God. And God, Jesus, in flesh, God in flesh, has defined himself as the great I Am. And under that powerful declaration, they fall backwards. Listen, truthfully, all kidding aside, we need to be able to evaluate what should be accepted as the work of the Spirit and what should be evaluated as not. And the way that you test that, there's a litmus test for understanding what is really of the work of the Spirit these days. Three things. Did Jesus teach it? Did the early church practice it? And do the epistles support it? When you look into the Bible and you answer those three questions, did Jesus teach it? Did the early church practice it? Do the epistles support it? then you can embrace it as a work of God or a work of the Spirit. So, for example, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus teach it? Yes. Did the early church practice it? Yes. Did the epistles support it? Yes. Gifts of the Spirit. Did Jesus teach it? Yes. Did the early church practice it? Yes. Did the epistles support it? Yes. Slain in the Spirit. Did Jesus teach it? No. Did the early church practice it? No. Did the epistles support it? No. 
Now, I've had over the years some people say to me, well, how do you explain the phenomenon of someone who, whatever that is, you know, however people define it, being slain in the spirit? My answer is, I'm not obligated to define and explain everything. My obligation as a pastor is to tell you what is clearly revealed in Scripture and what is not. That practice is simply not revealed in Scripture. Jesus didn't teach it. The early church didn't practice it. The epistles don't support it. It's clearly not happening here. This is a confrontation of the presence of the living God to those who are opposed to him. And when he declares, in essence, ego, I me, I am, I am the great I am, they fall back under that great revelation. Now, again, he asked them. So you got a picture, you know, 600, 700 people now, they're all, they're all backwards on their back. And he again asked them, now, who is it you want? Let's just figure this out again. Who is it? Who is it you want? And they're all like, you know, waking up or whatever's happening there. And they, they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you know, they're scared of saying it now this time. Jesus of Nazareth. That's, please don't do that again. And he says, I told you that I am he. I am. Jesus answered, if you were looking for me, then let these men go. Now, notice his heart for his own disciples. He doesn't want them to be persecuted here. They will all end up being persecuted with the exception of John the Apostle. Judas will hang himself, the exception of John the Apostle. The other ten will all be martyred. They will all suffer and die for their faith, but not now. And Jesus says, basically, you've come for me, leave these guys alone. And so he looks out for them in that way. Verse 9 says, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Your Bibles might have a footnote there. He said it back in John six thirty nine. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, in this little section here, John tells us two things that the other Gospels don't. Uh, one, he gives us the name of the guy whose ear got cut off, Malchus. The other Gospels don't tell us his name. He's the servant of the high priest. The other thing that John reveals here, and he's kind of throwing his friend under the bus, but he tells us it was Simon Peter. Three other Gospels just say, one of the disciples, and they're very discreet about it. We won't mention your name, Pete. But John, when he's writing, he's like, oh, I'm calling him out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Simon Peter, he's the guy that drew out his sword and struck off. And he tells us here, and he cut off the, servant, the servant's right ear. Now, this is interesting because when you look at Israel's history, there was one particular tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, that were seen in the Old Testament as left-handed, predominantly left-handed. But by and large, uh, most are right-handed. I'm a little kind of a weird mixture. I don't know about you, but I write with my right hand. I do most things with right hand, but all sports are played left-handed. I don't know. It's a little weird, but, um, but maybe it's more balanced because I'm right and left-brained. But anyhow... Yeah, I like to believe that. But um, anyhow, but here he is, Peter, probably right-handed. All right, so you got a sword in your right hand, and he's going to strike the right ear of the servant. Now, as he's wielding the sword, it would be kind of hard to hit the guy's right ear. Think about it. If the guy's facing him, all right, you, you got a drawn sword, you're facing someone, their right ear is going to be on your left So it would be a lot easier to hit his left ear with your right hand, which indicates that it is likely, some Bible scholars believe, 
that either Peter was just a really bad shot or Malchus's back was to him. Because if his back is to him, now his right ear is on the same side as your right hand with the sword, which kind of indicates, you know, not the bravest guy, Pete, right? Simon Peter is striking. First of all, he doesn't go after a Roman soldier. He goes after the servant of the high priest, probably unarmed and not even a Roman soldier, and his back is to Peter. So, you know, you get the idea here that Peter's like, you know what? Jesus said I was going to deny him. I got to do something here. All right, this looks like a a lame guy here. I'm just going to go ahead and, you know. (laughs) Now, John also, by the way, doesn't mention that Jesus picked up his ear and healed Malchus. John leaves that part out. So he just totally throws Simon Peter under the bus. You cut his ear off and we're just going to leave it right there. (laughs) So that's what happens. Now, Jesus, verse 11, commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And he's talking about the cup of suffering. And he knows that this is before him. And he knows that the cross is his mission. And he's compelled to go there by love. And it is love that will keep him there. His obedience to the Father and his love for the world. And so he says to Peter, look, I've got a cup to drink. It's the cup of suffering. Put your sword away. Well, verse 12 then says that then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, in this particular year, there were two high priests. Normally, there was only one among the Jewish people. Annas is the rightful high priest by birth, because the priesthood came through the tribe of Levi. So you could only be a priest and a high priest at that if you were of the tribe of Levi. Annas was of the tribe of Levi by birth. He was the rightful high priest. But when the Romans took over the empire, which included the territory of Israel and the Jewish people became subject to the Roman Empire, the Romans wanted Caiaphas as their selected high priest. And Caiaphas happened to be the son-in-law of Annas. So Caiaphas was put in as the high priest by the Romans, but the Jews really respected Annas as the high priest. So because there are two serving at this particular time, Jesus is going to go before both of them. Now, I put together a a little bit of a sequence of events for these very, because what we're going to get in here is a bunch of mock trials that Jesus is going to face. And the first one is going to be with Annas. But I put the whole list in here, because when you look at all the Gospels, and primarily here it's given right in John, but then Luke also tells us Herod is in the mix. You're going to see that as Jesus approaches the cross, he's going to first go to Annas, then they're going to take him before Caiaphas, then they're going to haul him before Pilate, and then Pilate passes him off to Herod, and Herod sends him back to Pilate. So he's going to go through five different mock trials, if you will, before he's ultimately crucified. Now, it tells us there's something about Caiaphas in verse 14. I want to explain this, where it says Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Back in John chapter 11, you don't need to turn back there, but in John chapter 11, there was this discussion among the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. What are we going to do with this Jesus guy? Because he's causing a lot of trouble. He's, He's stirring the crowds up. And what should we do? And some said we should just leave him alone. Another said we should kill him. 
And, and there was great debate among the Sanhedrin. These are the Jewish leaders. And they said, well, if we kill Jesus, uh, it, it is likely to inspire a revolt. And then the Romans might get upset with us and we could lose our temple and the whole thing. And so Caiaphas said it would be better for one man to die than for the, for the rest of the people. It would, be, it would be better for one guy to die than for all of us to suffer. So one guy should die for all the people. And it tells us in John 11 that Caiaphas did not even know that in saying as much, he was being used by God to say something prophetic. Jesus would, in the end, one die for the sake of the whole world so that through his death we might be saved. So that's that reference there to when Caiaphas said something that was prophetic, though he didn't even know it, because he's opposed to Jesus as well. So verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple. Now, whenever you read, and you're going to read it a few times in these last few chapters, another disciple, some unnamed disciple, it's John. Okay. John is writing in third person because he doesn't want to come right out and say, well, it was me. And it's funny because when you get to uh, chapter 20, which we won't get to tonight, but you'll see it when we get to chapter 20, John even writes in the third person about how he outran Peter to the tomb. And he says, you know, Peter and this other disciple started out running for the tomb and the other disciple got there first. <laughs> and then Peter came later. And it's, it's this coy way of saying, ah, I'm a faster runner. And so now here he is. Here's the other disciple. It's really John and Simon Peter were following Jesus. And it says, because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, thank you, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You know, it's not what you know, people. It's who you know. And John, in a discreet way, is saying, I know some peeps. You know what I'm saying to you? I know the high priest. I'll get you in, Peter. Come on. Follow me. And so in comes Peter. Now, when Peter comes in, uh uh-oh, here comes first denial. Verse 17, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Okay? Remember Jesus told Peter in advance, you will deny me, even knowing me, three times before the rooster crows. This is denial number one. I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so here we're working down the list. Now he's going to be handed off to Caiaphas. Verse 25 As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Denial number two. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? 
Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, John also leaves out the fact that Peter went off and wept uh, because he was, he was stricken with you know, grief and, um, and shame. He realized that he had done exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do by denying that he even knew Jesus. And why was he doing it? I mean, it's clear he was doing it because he was saving his own skin. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.